to the Serious Introspection Audio Podcast Extra number two. I think the first one was back in October or November, so this is clearly a very irregular podcast series. But I think it's nice whenever some interesting person is in town that I have good conversations with, that we can share that conversation with the world. <laughs> so today, happy to have Mr. Giralal Bars, the composer voice artist sound artist electroacoustic wizard i don't know what how else do you like to describe yourself i like that last one electroacoustic wizard. <laughs> no no just wizard <laughs> and yeah composer musician singer i, I, I hate these terms yeah too. i don't don't sort of i mean you can actually claim composer because you have the the academic training in a sense right you, yeah, you yeah, so yeah. you can actually say like i'm a card carrying Composer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you belong to a, a union or anything like that? Well, the, yeah, there's a composer's uh, society in Sweden uh, that I belong to. We should probably There's mention... one in Finland, there's one in like yeah. most countries. And, and I don't know how different countries, how, how uh, strict they are about these things, but, but in Sweden, you need to apply mm-hmm. and you need to have a track record, but there's no sort of formal, oh, you haven't finished that academy, well, mm. then you can't be a composer or anything like that. So. You got in first try? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess we should <laughs> mention. We I guess this? we should mention that you do live in Uppsala, Sweden. Uppsala, Sweden. That's right. Just li- north of Stockholm. And you lived there for quite a few years now. Donkey's years. I've, I've, I think I moved there like almost thirty years ago. Thirty. Yeah. Wow. That's um. And now we're we're reaching a point where you're thinking about possibly a, a life change, a move. Wow. I mean, the thing this, is, this is not to be on the record. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that my my uh, partner, she's from Finland, and she's not from Helsinki, but she's lived and studied in Helsinki for quite a long time before we got together, which is quite a long time ago. And so I think we've we've sort of talked about moving to Helsinki. It's been sort of at, at the back of our heads is there's plan to move to Helsinki, but but this has been going on for a long time, so I can't say that it's any more imminent or less imminent. But now, it is so. the number one choice. It would, yeah. Be, yeah, it would definitely be the number one choice. <laughs> no, I, I really like Helsinki. I have no no problem with Helsinki. And you've been here in the dead of winter, also, and still. Like oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I grew up in uh, I grew up in Moscow, and then I've lived in Sweden. So yeah. this is the same climate. I don't mind. I I hate the dark, but I love the the actual winter with the snow and the cold. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, the darkness doesn't bother me so much. I don't know. I guess when I, the first winter. I lived here. My my wife and I, my then wife, we were living in a, a basement space. We sort of rented a commercial warehouse, like Varesto space, because it was cheaper than an apartment for the amount of space we got. And that didn't have any windows at all. <laughs> so we spent this um, first winter just completely buying into this concept that like there will be no light. And it, yeah, 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 yeah. It, you know, it probably was not a wise move psychologically, but I didn't feel any you know depression symptoms or anything like that. Well, I mean, you took the light out of the equation, and yeah, it's like it wouldn't be. An <laughs> you issue. wouldn't even notice that it's getting darker earlier or staying darker longer. <laughs> I remember over the the first holiday, like the Christmas break of that year, two thousand eight. Um, she was out of school for Christmas, and I was working online, but also didn't have to work. And we started to get on this really strange sleep pattern where we would just stay mm-hmm. up really late. We were binge-watching some TV. I think we discovered Mad Men at that time. And I remember there was like a week straight where I, I literally didn't see any light because even when we go out to the shop, it would be completely dark, yeah, and yeah. we would sleep through the few hours of light that there were. We didn't have any windows. It was pretty insane, I guess, but... I don't know. I felt like when I was younger, I, I was able to push myself through these more extreme lifestyle patterns. And now I think I'm much more sensitive to these things. It's like, oh, I actually need to eat a balanced meal and <laughs> sleep on a proper bed. You know, yeah. it's funny how we age. 
But uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we what should we talk about? You know, we're we don't want to talk about your identity as a composer, right? No, no, <laughs> that seems a bit boring. Yeah, that is weird. Um, yeah, I, you know, we were just starting to talk about books before we started recording because tomorrow, for those listening, I'm driving away with most of my books. I have a huge amount of books that I've collected over the years, and I finally reached the point where I just realized, like, I, I need to get rid of stuff. So I, I found a lovely artist colony in Lithuania that is uh, runs a library, and I'm donating them. I, th- I, I don't know, I was even thinking of putting one of those, like, ex Libris John Fail stickers <laughs> on them. But there's too many to do that. But yeah, it's going to feel really good to get rid of a lot of books. And you said you, you've collected just tons and tons yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I've, I've, I, first of all, my, my, I grew up in a home. My father was a journalist. We had so many books at home. <clears throat> and I ended up with quite a few of them when he passed. And then, of course, I think it's one of those things. Uh, it's not a gene, but it's a meme. And when you grow up in a home full of books, you kind of assume that books belong in a home and, yeah. and you just continue as I love books and you know like most people uh, who read a lot nonetheless buy many many more books than you'll actually be able to ever read most likely but but um, and then you keep the books that you like and stuff like that because the ones you have an emotional attachment to I read this book I'm never going to read it again but it was such an experience and you keep it and then you just accrue all these all these uh, sort of masses this these cubic meters of of dead weight <laughs> i mean you have you lived in the same house in, in Uppsala? For yeah a long i've time? lived in the same apartment for for 20 years or something yeah. so it's just it's just but the thing is like um when my my partner when we got together when she moved in which is now about 10 years ago uh we there was there wasn't enough space mm-hmm. so but at the roughly at the same time i ended up with my own proper studio space so and books really good absorbers the sound sound yeah. absorbers and yeah. also also they they're good because if you have a lot of books and you have decent bookshelves you actually end up uh, putting books in two rows yep. so yeah. exactly so. and you end up with a with a with an air buffer in between mm-hmm. which is the way you want to go yeah you know, and also, as someone pointed out to me, is that when you, you know, if you, if you, if you don't make your books completely straight in the bookshelf, but actually sticking out at odds, you know, different um, lengths sticking out, that's essentially what yeah. people pay loads of money to get diffusers for their studio for. So yeah, so they ended up like one wall is covered with books. Some yeah. books you would say are only valuable as <laughs> as sound baffling. Definitely. Yeah. But do you think it's like a it's a particularly male thing to to collect? like? Do you consider yourself a collector? No, no. I think I was at some point. I have one thing that I so far haven't really gotten rid of any of those. It, it's science fiction because I grew uh, up reading science fiction. It was the first stuff that I got interested in so reading. So like small paperback. Yeah. yeah. So I have an immense. Well, and I, I depends on your standards, but I have quite a lot of them because i've been reading science fiction since i was 10 huh. and and um and my father did so a large part of it originally comes from him but also i'm constantly buying and reading uh, the busier i get the more i almost only exclusively read science fiction because it's just a way to relax and, so do you hunt down else. a lot of like obscure paperbacks and stuff not so much not so much no i'm like i said i'm not a collector i don't care yeah. what they look like but there's definitely way, like but... titles you've kept an eye on for oh yeah yeah and when when you know like i think a lot of science fiction um readers work that way is that when you like an author you end up reading almost everything they've written because 
because you like the author, you like how they're yeah. thinking. Do you um, buy a lot based just on the cover, and then they turn out to be? Oh, great. absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. No, no, oh, no, 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 never do that. No, no. I'm I'm very particular about my science fiction. I like really good science fiction, mm-hmm. and of course, what is good science fiction? Yeah, but to me, it's it's the idea of like science fiction is good when it makes you work right like, it, not it's not star trek what are they called space and, space opera yeah the, i mean there's some really good space opera yeah. having said that there's there's some amazing space opera but there's also yeah i like i guess a lot of the i did my master's dissertation on well i did it on a couple of things but one of the main texts was samuel uh, delaney's dahlgren yeah which to me is like one of the best science fiction mm-hmm. works there is but it's not classified generally as science fiction which is funny like he's seen as a postmodern novelist and there's a lot of people who sort of like you know you cross that line because science fiction is still looked out upon it's mm-hmm. still denigrated mm-hmm. which is really unfair especially yeah. when it's it's commercial potential is insane now. I mean the, yeah, yeah. the the market it must be dominated by it, but yet well, I think fantasy is actually the thing that dominates the market. Yeah, vamp- like, vampires. That is the, yeah, and, and all those yeah, endless rehashes of the same sort of thing, the the, the book covers with someone holding a sword sort of thing and some yeah. fire of a ring of fire or something like that. But um, And you've no interest in that stuff. I have no interest yeah. in anything. No, just doesn't interest me. I started out reading Asimov and Heinlein and uh, yeah, that's my definition of yeah. good science fiction there's some and the thing is like in the last 20 years there's been like because i remember in the 80s uh when i'd sort of read through my father's library and i was sort of like starting to look for for stuff that i'd be interested in or this is probably even early 90s and i would it was really hard because you just keep looking for the same, you know, Frank Herbert, Robert Heinlein, uh, Stanislav Lem, the guys you've already read, yeah. and you sort of run out of books because they, you know, they were dead or or not writing so much. Even though Asimov probably wrote like seven thousand books. Well, yeah, he has some. Yeah, I think at some point he had some sort of world record or something yeah. like that. But yeah, if Asimov actually wrote so many uh, nonfiction books, also. Yeah, he a did, lot of popular like, science books and stuff like that. So, yeah. and but the, what I why then discovered was that, meanwhile, un, unbeknownst to me, British science fiction just exploded. Yeah, I like, mean, you know, they they were right in the started out, I guess, early mid nineties, and then they were like uh, mid nineties. Well, something like that. Oh, I so mean, more, the first so this is like yeah, a newer wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was just, and these are the guys, I mean, there's that British wave of fantastic science fiction is still going today because uh, even though, what's his name, died, uh, names and I. Um, because yeah. like before that, like, like like Michael Moorcock and John Brunner, they were yeah. British, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. They were writing yeah, in like yeah. the 70s. And this is 60s that. and 70s, yeah, 70s, I guess. So, yeah, absolutely. But so there's there was been a way, more recently. But the 80s was, uh, you know, I mean, you could, say, you could say that about a lot of things about the 80s, but it was a rather dead sort of thing. And for a while, science fiction, I think, was heavily connected to American authors. It was huh. an American thing somehow. Um, but then all these, these uh, quite strange science fiction started coming out of out of great britain and then it, it may, particularly scotland for some reason i don't know why um so do you uh do you like actually follow like the science fi scene no you, like if no. you you don't read book reviews and go find i the do books? a little bit i do uh. a little bit because i want to see if there's anything good you know that i'd be interested in somehow but now do you feel that this this interest in science fiction which i had no idea about this okay. i don't know you that well but that, i didn't know that do you feel that it, it, it somehow connects to your your work as a musician and sound artist do you feel well, i I, th- I think so yeah i mean uh apart from the fact that i've been playing theremin for like almost 20 years <laughs> uh, <that's... laughs> if ever there was an what? instrument connected to science fiction 
but don't but, you almost want to try to deconnect theremin from science fiction because it's so cliche yeah. attached to it like but i mean i've been playing it for a long time and i i i'm not one of those <clears throat> i'm not a note reader when it comes to playing theremin mm. uh, i mean there are people who do that very well but i have a i've been playing for a very long time and and I know quite well how to improvise on the theremin melodically, mm-hmm. uh, given a context or something like that. And um, so yeah, I don't. I mean, it's just I don't even think about it. But I know it has that sort of connotation for some people. But, but I mean, more in terms of the sort of like sound worlds that you're attempting to create. Mm. This uh, are, are you influenced in the same way with some of the ideas of science fiction of of reinvention, displacement, any of these things? Or are you maybe more trying to reflect? Uh, your experiences in the real world well i mean uh because i work with electric like one of the things i do is work with electroacoustic means let's say sometimes it's actual electroacoustic pieces other times it's just using electronics in in Mm. the live situation and um and i'm sure that there's must be a connection why did a 12 year old boy get interested in science fiction and we're talking this this kind of hardcore science fiction asimov and stuff Mm. Uh, which is all about, well, not all Rules. about, but but it's, 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 there's a lot of technology yeah, and spaceships yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. And so why did a 12-year-old boy get interested in that and then study science in high school and then actually start studying physics in university? But then I, I quit that quite, quite quickly and started doing music instead. But uh, Not good at math? Uh, I no, You know what it was? It was just that I, because I, I was pretty good at it, but then I, then I, you can come to university and you see the people who are really good at it. <laughs> and then I saw, I sort of, at some point I realized that I can do this, but I don't have the sort of intuitive, I, I don't like the word genius, but this sort of ability to intuitively grasp things the way some of these people had. Mm-hmm. So I realized that I'm always going to be a, a two-bit physicist like you'll just be behind the the wave of, of leaders or something like yeah. that not That's that i need I... to be a leader but but i i just didn't feel that you know i i felt i didn't feel i can't do this i just felt like this is going to be a academic pursuit rather than a sort of you know the the idea of being a sort of physicist and mm-hmm. just doing discovering science this is going to be an academic thing where you you're stuck in sort of academic channels and everyone you know how it is in those channels uh, it's careers and it's 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 it's, it's pressure it's tough it's pressure it's backbiting and it's all these things you know what goes on in in the real world and um and then i figure well if, if it's going to be like that then i might as well just pursue uh, music and i did that by by i started studying musicology that's mm-hmm. why i did for the first couple of years and you know, I figured, well, I might as well do. I can just as well do that in that field. Then, but when you're a, a sci-fi loving teenager, were you also at that point getting interested in John Cage and Stockhausen? And no, that came much, much later, later. Much later, yeah. So, what what was your sort of uh, popular culture influences then? My popular culture influences were. Uh, and this is Moscow, I guess, right? Well, no, no, uh, this is Sweden. Already, this year yeah. Sweden, so, so uh, my my influences were more. I think there are two names that really stick out to this day for me: uh, Frank Zappa and The Who. Yeah, <laughs> not necessarily in that order. And then there was a bunch of others. So yeah, sixties and early seventies rock music is what really sort of you know. I mean, I I did go through a period when I was even younger, like preteen, where I was totally into Barry Manilow and and Donna <laughs> Summer. 
and and it's you it's it's worth laughing about that but it's interesting because they what unites both of them I'm is not that knocking them. I just no, think it's funny. no no yeah. but i mean it, it is easy to knock because uh, but the thing what unites them is actually they're fantastic singers mm-hmm. both of them are phenomenal singers so i think for me it's always been like the voice is the thing that really kind of has carried music for me somehow um so you because i'm a singer today i see myself primarily as a as a vocalist mm-hmm. and um, so there was that but yeah then by my teens i was sort of interested and it was it was a lot where, where of late ba- 60s early 70s rock where did the very man alone donna summer influence come from from your parents no i don't like, know uh, i just picked it up yeah. yeah tv or something oh i guess yeah, yeah that would have been the yeah. time oh. so but uh so the who and, and and frank zappa which by then were kind of old old yeah. news but uh, you know you grow up and you have you're surrounded by people you uh, there's people who are older than you who you admire and you, you you obviously pick up their things and then some of these things resonate with whatever you have in your own mind yeah and and the who and frank zappa and jethro tall a bunch of that stuff genesis which really uh, fits in if uh, with the cliche of a sci-fi high school i guess kid. it does yeah, i guess it does much. i guess yeah. it does did you have role-playing games then no no i was i, I never got into that just i never completely i kind of want to now yeah it's, it's it's it feels like there's this whole thing that we're missing out yeah. on. <laughs> like i wasn't <laughs> really truly a, a nerd because yeah i was like playing with unix workstations when i was in high school you okay. know and it was years before i ever kissed a girl or anything but then, um, yeah, I never did role-playing games. And I really kind of find them interesting and they sound fun. But it's really hard in your late 30s to start playing role-playing games, <laughs> especially in Finland. Yeah, probably. And also, I think, because I, I know people who still play them, yeah. uh, who've been playing them since they were young. And, and it's like a set circle of people. Yeah, I there's no, there, there, you know, you have to be 16 to open up a new circle of people who would play together for, you know, for years and years. So it feels like I'm not going to go to... I'm not going to walk into a room, a situation that has been developing on and off for like 10, 15, 20 years and pretend that I can contribute anything. But I what mean, would even be worse is, okay, when I lived in Scotland, I worked with a woman who did live action role playing mm-hmm. and she went to Renaissance fairs and yeah. did the whole thing. And I, I got like kind of excited. I was like, oh, I, I really, I didn't want to play like live action. I didn't want to put the costumes on, but I really wanted to go to just a classic tabletop dice rolling Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. whatever. And I asked her, um, you know, if if I could come and play sometime. And I think I was like so excited. I think she thought I was making fun of her a little oh, bit because you know I'm okay. kind of a prick. I can come off that way. <laughs> and I was, um, and she was kind of like, well, you know. And she kind of said the same thing to me, like, well, you know, my friends and I, we've been playing for years and we're in the middle of a campaign. They always say campaign, you know, and we don't have any space now. And then she was like, why don't you just go to the mall and find some kids or something, you know, that you can play with. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go start like talking to like teenage boys in the <laughs> shopping center. In, Especially in Britain. In Britain, in which Britain. is like, paranoid about that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I guess that's what you sort of have to do. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, that's what I mean. And, and then that somehow just puts up that barrier <laughs> when i first moved here i was saying this to a friend and he got he said that at his local uh supermarket like s market or Olive, you know how there's little cards people write ads like oh, i'm mm-hmm. selling a, a boat or whatever he said he saw one that said i'm an english language dungeon master looking for people to play with okay so like i went to his supermarket and i, I couldn't find it oh and i was like, damn. Oh, like you were that best. close yeah, that I close. Could, like, call, like, i like i saw your ad at Olipa. would you be my dungeon master <laughs> 
But I, I'm sure, like, I guess now it, it could be arranged. If, if we get enough of us, like, if you move to Helsinki, <laughs> we get a bunch of people who have never played Dungeons & Dragons but always wanted to. That's I'm sure true, one of us true. could figure out yeah, how to yeah, dungeon yeah. master or game master or yeah. whatever we do. But do young kids do that now? I think so, yeah. Okay, because I'm just thinking because, because you know, well... Because it'd be all, like, apps and stuff now. Yeah, and also and even more like the online gaming, uh, what's it called, War of the Worlds or whatever it's called. Oh, yeah, Clash of Clans or whatever they do that. War, no, war, no, oh, no. Um, war, Warcraft, yeah. Warcraft. Yeah. I'm thinking of where you literally create the you know you have the same situation but super high tech yeah. and and flashy and all that and you and I guess it's but like, there's it's, role playing in that or is that just like a game? Well, it is a game, but it's it, it you you inhabit your roles I guess to certain you because you have I've understood that you have uh, I mean you create your character as you play you're creating because you're making choices all the time do I, do, does he have horns no i don't want to have horns what i want to have is a super fist or whatever you know and you, you know. I, I so so oh. but what i mean is just that i think for a lot of people they actually inhabit those those things pretty much the same way that you do in dungeon and dragons i imagine where you sort of create a character as you're playing yeah i had a, a realization recently which is this idea of world building which my, my friend andy who's a comedian and a comedy writer in new york he told me this term as it applies to comedy that when you create a television show or some sort of ongoing comedic premise you know the he really is also into this idea of building world where there's not just characters and side characters but there's mm -hmm, sort of backstory mm -hmm. and and i realized how much that appeals to me in art yeah. and it's something that i think i liked about running a culture space because it's like building your own yeah. world and you can have your own definitions that i think sense. that's what appeals to me about role playing yeah and maybe one of the reasons i don't play in bands anymore well besides the fact that it's not so easy now is that i kind of miss that sense you know like these one-off improv events and you know, I can play with three people once and mm -hmm. it's fine, but it doesn't have this sense of like growing something. No, and no. that's what I really want. And it seems like it's harder and harder now. I don't know. Well, I, 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 th I, I see what you mean. And, and of course, when you're young and you start a band and you play together, you know, on a daily basis <laughs> almost, and, and you're practicing, you are creating a world in a sense. Yeah. You, you may not even have definitions for a lot of things you're doing, but of course you're creating a world. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it, it's it's an emotional world also it's it's very much uh, something you inhabit together but the thing is uh yeah. I, I i guess i see i totally see what you mean but i think also i think also that um about the one-off impro gigs uh i think it becomes more about you building your own world yeah and your own world is that you <laughs> the definition of it is not I play with anyone anytime the definition but I guess you know every time you play with someone whether it's the first time or the or the 20th time you bring everything that you've done in between yeah. you, you bring the other you, you're creating your own sort of perspective your own world and it's when these worlds then you know as improvisers meet that you could say that there's you know that's the interesting it's it's like slotting puzzle pieces together. That yeah, have to yeah, 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 yeah. No, so it, I mean, it you, it's, it's sort of like. I, but I, I see what you mean because you, it, there certainly isn't that that kind of emotional connection, because yeah. the emotional connection you have when you s sweat with a bunch of people in the same room for hours and hours, years sometimes. You know, it's it's it just is isn't there when you meet someone and you get along fine and you share a beer and then you yeah, do a gig and, and then you, you share a few people. more beers and then you know it's not quite the same thing, of yeah. course. But that's strangely. The idea of becoming successful and professional is closer to that 
you know, because that what makes you really uh, professional is building that sense of self. Mm. And there's a lot of sacrifice, I guess, involved with with being in a band. You know, you could, of course, have the ego driven front man who takes the limelight. But really, um, you are sort of submitting your own vision to to a shared thing. Then, mm, mm, mm. And it's I don't but know. You're doing that when you improvise. You too. are. I mean, for I, 45 I, minutes. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, I I think a large, well, I mean, a lot of people have. There's probably as many ways of describing this as there are people yeah, doing it, but sure. but to me, I think what the the people I admire when they've written about these things and the way I think about these things is that the like if you and I improvise together, the point the, which was the plan, but now we're doing which a was podcast. the plan we were doing a podcast, which is a sort of improvisation, maybe. Absolutely, but. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so when when the point is not me bringing you my world, yeah, the point is sure. me exploring your world and and you exploring my world. Our worlds are talking to each other. If you want to use the continue with the world metaphor, our tools, our our, our languages are meeting and and sort of figuring out how to work coexist together for twenty minutes or forty five minutes. Yeah. Or and I, that's really exciting. It is. It is. It can be very very beautiful and also very challenging. Yeah, and absolutely. I've been trying to kind of train myself to like appreciate, like when I've played with people publicly or privately, the, the times that it, it doesn't work, the times that I, I really feel frustrated and challenged, I want to think of those as the better experiences mm. because they force me to grow more. Mm-hmm. Whereas a, instead of just you sit down, you sort of slot into some sort of groove. And I put groove in inverted commas because yeah, of yeah. course it's not an actual rhythm, but no, there, yeah. there are like sort of patterns and feelings like that's so easy but then that's what you think oh that was a great great play we had you know but mm-hmm. but then when i've been in live situations in the audience watching musicians improvise who and it doesn't really go that well it's not that enjoyable but then at the same time that's kind of what can i take as an audience member that same sort of challenge can i think like oh this was a really interesting experience because these musicians didn't find a place and they pushed each other and there was a maybe almost a power struggle and you know, can you can you leave thinking like that? I grew somehow from that. Mm-hmm. It's really hard because it actually means sitting through kind of a crap gig, you know, <laughs> and then trying to spin it. Whereas the so-called good gig, you can think, well, that was easy. This music's not supposed to be easy. I don't know. I'm asking I, I, I think nothing. I, I no, I see what you mean totally. I, I and and I mean, it's one of the things, isn't it? That what any sort of failure. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up a fail a failed audience participation experience. Uh but but uh any kind of failure does does kind of hopefully have you asking yourself some questions afterwards and going and maybe you even find some answers to it and maybe you end up doing something else but uh or improving somehow. But I think it also leads to the question of what is a if we restrict ourselves to improvisation, live improvisation, what is a successful gig, and what mm-hmm. is a and and that is really that's really funny question to ask also because is a successful gig something that had people drinking a lot of beer or smiling a lot or coming walking up afterwards and giving you compliments is that is is that the definition of a successful impro gig or uh, is it is is it as you say this this notion of where you you push some sort of boundary within yourself uh, or collectively where you oh i've never been there before and that was really uncomfortable but i ended up there and and uh, i don't know what a successful impro gig is i think a, a successful improvised music gig is very different than a successful composed or genre music gig. well i mean improv music is a genre but yeah. and 
I think back to when I was young, uh, the guy in Pittsburgh who organized those kind of gigs, Manny. Hi, Manny, if you're listening. Um, he once made this poster, and I think I couldn't tell if he was joking or not, but he put this slogan and said, Music's so new, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and we all made fun of him for it, and maybe he meant it kind of tongue in cheek anyway. But there is this sense that what you're experiencing with improvised music is something that is is very much about it. It's ephemeral. It, it happened on the spot. It, it was created out of nothing. Mm. It was something that was almost like a magic of being there. Mm. And maybe that's actually the best measurement is if it was something remarkable that you could feel the like sort of spontaneity of it or the mm, sort of mm. um, way it came together in front of you. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just seeing people play a score or right, play a song right. or whatever. And maybe then the challenging part whether it clicks or it doesn't it, that's almost another layer mm -hmm. I, I don't know actually i yeah, really yeah. i mean it's interesting because um i used to really play music a lot live and now i've been an audience member for the last few years more or less and we were talking in the coffee shop about being an audience member and how i was saying i get frustrated and it actually in a weird way inspires me because i just think like why am i here i should be at home making stuff you know and, and then i kind of go home with some new ideas not so much because I was influenced by what I saw, but just because I was maybe a bit bored, and, yeah, yeah. and it's it's weird. Maybe I should seek out boring gigs as like a sort of like torture or therapy to put myself through, <laughs> and then I have a little notebook to write down the yeah, brilliant like, ideas you have while you're watching which might have nothing boring to do with three-hour opera or something. <laughs> yeah, like, but do you um, you go to see a, like lots of live? Events? I wish I could say that, but but first of all, there's not much happening in Uppsala. No? Not really. No, no. But um, it's university town. It right? is university town. I mean, there's there's probably loads of gigs happening in the student unions, but there'll be pop bands. And I'm maybe not so interested in that. But uh, there's not so much happening in terms of like really interesting live events. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't go like once a week to see some sort of experimental-ish music. No, no. Uh, You'd have to go to Stockholm. Now, <clears throat> which is for those bad. of us not totally aware of, uh, of the world geography to the smallest, tiniest detail, Uppsala is not very far away from yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. From Stockholm. It's 40 minutes by train. Uh, but it's still 40 minutes by train yeah. and it's return and you come back late and you want to get up early and do your stuff. And so I, I tend not to sort of run off to Stockholm as soon as there's something interesting because it partly it's money, it yeah. costs to travel and it, there's a lot of time as well. And coming back late is always tricky because that affects next morning, you know, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm not a very disciplined person, but but I like I no no really? but I do like oh. to get up early in the morning to get things done because I feel uh, I'm more of the sort of like I wish I was disciplined. For some reason you you strike me as disciplined. <laughs> as little know. as I know you, I, yeah. I've always thought you were like really on the ball. I, I guess what does that? I mean, everything is re relevant. I mean, but isn't the most important thing is that you can make other people think you're disciplined? So exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I've, I've succeeded, <laughs> and now completely failed with this, with this podcast <laughs> the secret is that we can edit that out where you admit that you're not super disciplined but i so what i mean is i guess i'm always trying to create situations where i am quite disciplined i've i've um we were talking about that earlier about when uh, as you grow older you notice that you know this thing of just having irregular sleeping hours and and stuff it doesn't really work out that well as your body goes gets older i suppose you have to respect that mm. partly and you start i start valuing my own like energy so to speak however you want to interpret you mean, that you my, know how to conserve it yeah, yeah. and I, I i find myself being in a situation where i prefer to 
have my own energy to do the things that I'm supposed to be doing or and 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 slash and or want to be doing uh, rather than you know uh, and the, I quite frequently bring this up with uh, other people other friends musicians who live in for instance Uppsala uh, that it's sometimes nice to inhabit the periphery mm. Because Very much so. first of all, you you can do stuff in the periphery that you never can do when you're in the sort of the place, yeah. like the focus of things. Because you you when you're in the focus of stuff, you of of the gaze of whatever audience you have, you know, you have to deliver to a certain extent. And again, what is a successful delivery of an experimental music concert? But you you have to sort of give the shit has to be there. Mm. Whereas uh, on the periphery nobody's not many people are looking What's and it funny? gives you gives you a margin of error that's maybe more interesting in terms of developing as an artist it's, i feel it's a funny thing periphery because i actually consider helsinki to be quite peripheral compared to where i used to live which even though glasgow was also far away just being in the uk and being part of that whole music world mm. and, and you know if i lived in berlin or somewhere like that i would probably still be in primarily the same social bubble i was in 10 years ago and now I'm not, but then I guess to you, Uppsala is even more peripheral than Stockholm or Helsinki. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of like, and I could also move to the countryside or yeah. something. You know? I mean, I lived in Tallinn for a few years yeah, and that yeah. felt very peripheral yeah, yeah. to a certain scene, you know, like yeah. to at least what I was coming from, it just didn't exist there. There was a no. handful of people that were maybe doing some stuff. But, um, but I actually, maybe I realized how much... I do need, there's a sort of nurturing feeling of being around a current. Maybe it's almost like your ego gets pressured when you see other people just doing so much. Because I don't know, like I don't do that much now. You know, or at least I do different things. But. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I lived in Helsinki 2000, yeah. 2001 for about nine, 10 months. I was an exchange student here. And um, I think already from that period of living there and then subsequently coming here quite often, working with people... Uh, I sort of had the idea that, yeah, Helsinki is definitely peripheral. I mean, yeah. completely. Finland is per the periphery of, of Western Europe is Finland. It's funny it's even called Western Europe when it's like so far away in the wow. east. It's just, yeah, well. it's psychologically Western yeah, Europe. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's Western Europe in terms of being the capitalist sort of yeah, Western more, Europe. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so Stockholm is definitely more less peripheral but you know if you as you say if you live in if live in berlin then stockholm of course is peripheral but the thing about sweden is and stockholm particularly is that they see themselves i mean sweden used to be the superpower yeah. in in this region and for better or for worse they see themselves i think there is and i was talking to someone not long ago and he sort of really nailed it because he said that there is a level of anxiety in Sweden, in Swedish arts, mm -hmm. that you don't find in other Nordic countries, and we talked about that some more, and it was exactly what I've been thinking, which which is that in Stockholm there's a little bit of a tendency, like we have to succeed at this, like we have ABBA, we have you know whatever it is. There's this idea in Sweden that you don't do things. I'm exaggerating yeah, very much sure. now, but there is much more of an idea that you don't do things unless you think this can be very successful, because that's what we do in Sweden. Oh, so that anxiety, it, it's behind the art, but it's not in it. 
No, no, behind the eyes. So there's not more like honesty or people putting their fears forth in what they do. It's actually. I'm sure there is, of course, there's all that also. But I I just mean that there is like a there's like a performance anxiety thing where pressure maybe. Yeah, Yeah. if we we need to be doing something really, something that means a lot, something that's really good or or successful or something like that. Whereas uh, I think the nice thing about coming to um, coming to Helsinki and also going to Norway and stuff is that there isn't that idea that oh i'm having a concert and it's the most rah, you know it it's just people like, just do stuff yeah. to to i mean to and i think i think if you i've never lived in london but i did my phd in in northern england so i i like i've a little bit yeah, of a feeling like huddersfield of or huddersfield yeah. yeah so i have a little bit of a feeling of 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 how that would would have worked somehow I've of course met loads of people who work in london and they seem to have that in in cubes what, i mean the, they, the, the that that sort of pressure that like you don't do something unless it's really fucking good yeah you know and and uh, i think there is the, the, so everything is relative of course but and i think i find it really nice to be able to to step out of that sort of thing uh in the periphery of Uppsala or actually helsinki um and relatively speaking stockholm of course mm. as well and just do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's also, I think, one of the reasons why I'm quite happy not living in a city where there's millions of things going on every evening because no matter what, when you see other people perform uh, and, and you take it in and, and you that affects a little bit of you... And that's oh, yeah, not yeah. a bad it's, thing. It that's, doesn't something. have to be. Yeah, you're absorbing other people's memes uh, to a large extent. And that, that's not a bad thing. But there's a time and place for when you want to absorb mm-hmm. memes and when you want to work on your own memes, so to speak. Yeah, uh, it can be quite quite draining sometimes to be in an audience. <laughs> or, yeah, or not yeah. even to be in an audience, but to feel like you need to support things. Mm. You know, even having having friends in the arts can be sometimes a bit much because, of course, you want to see what your friends do. Yeah. But a lot of times, are you genuinely interested in what your friends no, are doing, no, or do you no, like yeah. the people? And that's that's the terrible. Yeah, side, yeah. You know? and, but actually, um, I found it maybe easier to enjoy when I just like the people, because then I'm not trying to evaluate it in some framework of like high criticism yeah. or you know, I'm just happy that they're doing what they want to do. Yeah, and yeah, that could be good. Yeah. I agree totally, and and I think I think uh, I think, I mean, there's this. I remember studying all sorts of things. There was this perennial question about whether you know can you judge Wagner's music on the fact that Wagner was seems to at least have been pretty much an asshole in, yeah. in particular. You know, almost every <laughs> every reference point you'd have, he seemed to be a dick, and w- so can you judge his music that way? And I think you know we're human beings. There is a bit of a tendency for us to do that, regardless. Um, and so it's really it's it, it is. I agree. It's much easier to go to a gig with people you like, and just go, "Hey, that was really good," because I like you. Uh, whereas it's not so easy sometimes with <laughs> people you don't like. Yeah. Well, that's the classic like Woody Allen question, isn't it? And I I never really found that discussion very interesting. But then, I don't know, a year or two ago, I, I bought a Kim Fowley record that I really liked. And then, like, a week later, they announced the story that Kim Fowley had, like, serially raped all these girls he was managing. And he slept with all these underage girls and pressured them. And it was basically a monster. Mm. And it was this question, like, oh, but I really like these couple records he made, you know. And, and I never cared about that question before. But then no. I just thought, well, you know, I can still, like, enjoy those records as music and just not, like, tell the world I love Kim Fowley. And... 
yet the last few times, like sometimes I have my uh, iTunes thing play play random album, and when a Kim Folly record comes up, I'm just like no, I don't want to <laughs> listen to that now. Well, so it's like set, seeped into me a bit, like this. I was I was talking to this uh, this uh, relatively new acquaintance I have who lives who's Finnish and lives here in Helsinki. Uh, who's uh, who does a lot of yoga, uh, mm-hmm. particularly breathing yoga? Oh, the, the real mellow the ones, pranayama. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and we were talking. We were because I've been doing yoga, Ashtanga yoga, and a bunch of stuff, and and also this breathing stuff on and off. Sort of, I'm not a serious devotee, but yeah. I do it regularly. Seems probably with the voice work you do, probably a big. Part yeah, of it's that. A, yeah, it's a good yeah. help to do that. Uh, and and we were just talking and of course this guy has been in this world for ages and ages and he goes to workshops all over the world and stuff like that so he knows a lot about this sort of thing and we were just talking about the fact that it's very funny that 90 or at least like 70 80 percent of the people who do yoga are women but or i I mean literally in the places i do yoga it's like more like 90 95 percent of women yeah i guess so but it's funny that when you when you look at these workshops that people go to and all that stuff, the the people who the the gurus the the and we're not even talking about the Indian dudes here or the whatever the Asian dudes who who sort of come from this tradition. We're talking about the the people Just in the, New York yeah. or in Berlin and stuff who do this. They're all men, or so, not not all men, but it's like seventy yeah. percent. 60, 70 percent. It's the same in libraries. Men. I worked in public libraries for a while in the states, and they always have predominantly female librarians. The managers, deputy directors, they get up there, mm. often women. The head director of a library is always a guy. It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, and, uh, and it's really funny. But And then, so that that idea, like, how what is this? Is this some sort of, like, hidden part of, of the human uh, mental anatomy? Sort of that means that, you know, women like to do this, but the men like to be the gurus, and the men are the ones who push themselves to end up in that position of being the teachers whereas the women are quite happy just doing oh i don't know what the but the point is we then sort of uh, of course touched on the subject because there's been quite a lot of revelations in the last 10 15 years i understand i don't follow this at all but of these sort of really high placed yogi people who turn out to have been dicks on, oh, on, on sure. many yeah, levels absolutely. you know ma- primarily regarding you know isn't male that, female relationships kind of why you become a guru <laughs> i mean it's sort of like one of the perks is that you yeah. get to like have your way with all your devotees yeah financially or otherwise yeah yeah, yeah 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 i mean I'm not no surprised. so so there's been there's been quite i mean we're talking about yoga now not I yeah. mean, there's other examples of that but like specifically in yoga there was this there was a guy who had this amazing name what was his he was like it must have been a taken name. I forget, but he was a big yoga dude in in New York, mm. sort of and globally. And Not he the is. periphery of yoga, New York. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, you know, he, the kind of people who make a seriously good living out of it. And then he was completely disgraced because it turns out he was, you know, sexually harassing yeah. almost everyone. <laughs> and and uh, the point I'm trying to get to, I guess, is that you you we then like my friend then said, well, the thing is that I. If you're doing yoga and the whole idea is some sort of physical and spiritual development and then you behave in such a disrespectful way to other people, you just there's no way you can respect that person's teaching because they yeah. may write or say whatever they do, but if their behavior is so obviously flawed, you go like, well, you obviously aren't, you aren't, 
taking in what you're preaching. You, you're just not behaving according to the laws of the stuff that you're trying to develop, and that you may understand technically on paper, but you're not developed yeah. that way. And it's it just makes it almost impossible to even take those people seriously in terms of that thing. And I'm I'm not music is a bit of a different thing. I mean, well, yeah, because Kim Fowley made all these great weird records of like kind of rebellious rock music with like you know strange sci-fi and glam overtones it yeah. kind of almost supports his lifestyle yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then it asks the question in you well what do i like about this music you yeah, know like yeah, am yeah, i yeah. in a way role playing with like this sordid lifestyle that yeah, i don't yeah. want to actually lead yeah but then obviously i love this music because it has some sort of sense of yeah, rebellion yeah, in it, yeah. and then he actually did that stuff so. yeah yeah you know, not that he was singing about banging fourteen-year-olds, no, but you know, no, it's still yeah, yeah. it's implied. There's the yeah, the implication, yeah. perhaps. But no, I, I, I mean, it's it's hard to, I mean, if we have a idea, and I think most of us do have an idea that art is a representation of an individual's inner life. Then when it turns out that their inner life was actually pretty disgusting on one level or another, it's really hard to then just accept that the outpouring of their inner life resulted in this art and also in that behavior. Yeah. And you kind of end up kind of equating them. And it's, it's, it's really hard, I think, to look past that. Now, this, this yoga guru, like, were people really surprised when these allegations came out? Yeah, I think so, because he was, he was this... Uh, 40, 50-year-old white dude who had been doing this for ages and ages and really developed, like, has his own uh, clothes line and oh, everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was a multimillionaire, I guess. And now you he's know. just, like, disgraced in room. I don't know what's happened because yeah. I don't follow this. So, but I did, I did note that thing. So when my friend was talking about this and he had some other examples of, you know, some, some of these really highly placed... Um, there was also that porn guy recently, that uh, James Dean, D-E-E-N, because he was sort of seen as this like alt-porn guy. He was just a porn star, but for some reason people thought he was like somehow, I don't know, Hip. more like intellectual than the <laughs> average porn star. I don't know what, what that yeah. would be. But then these allegations came out from a, a whole bunch of, of actresses and also just, I think, other people saying, well, he, he's like basically a rapist. Oh, okay. And everybody was shocked, and now he's fallen from grace as yeah, this yeah, like yeah. cool porn guy. But like, I mean, you know, I, what is surprising about that to me, it's not the slightest bit shocking to me. He's a porn star. He lives in this world where, you know, sex is objectified all the time. And why is anybody surprised that he acts this way? And I guess I just was thinking about how all of our focus on uh gender equality and gender um awareness which is i've been really really pleased with the way popular mm -hmm. culture has gone now you know there's you're finally seeing hollywood films for women starring mm -hmm. women you know we're getting a lot better especially in sweden i mean mm -hmm. sweden is like extremely politically correct it's like yeah. illegal to dress your boy child in blue and girl child in pink right? absolutely like, there's, there's harsh punishment yeah yeah but um <laughs> Despite all of this sort of like surface level addressing of these things, I feel like that the deeper power issues between men and women and maybe the systems that, that ratify those those power struggles are actually, we're probably moving almost away from that mm. because I think the, the surface level stuff is, is kind of like disguising the, the deeper, darker, like mm -hmm. carnal energy that's causing us to yeah. find these situations out, you know, yeah. like or causing people to do these things. Well, I think, I think it's a long way away from improv music. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure such. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, improv music is, is also power relationships and male dominated as well. Extremely male dominated. And, and uh, so I think this is, you know, the the re one of the reasons I value improv music is because it's a it's a, such a direct reflection of of 
the here and now mm-hmm. uh, in the people I'm listening to, but also in myself when I'm performing. So uh, that relates to everything, to all these things. I think improv music, rather than pop music, pop music is a is a construct, uh, and you you can be very intellectual about it or very intuitive about it, but it's still a construct. Yeah. It's it's something that's made to communicate very very simple things, uh, or or complicate things in a very very simple straightforward way in a sense. And like Abba. not. Like Apple or the Who or Frank Zappa. Yeah, I mean, incredibly no, adult, sophisticated concepts. It can be, music, yeah, which, it can be very, very yeah. complicated stuff. But, but it's still nonetheless meant to communicate very directly. Yeah. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but I think improv music has this this thing about it that that in in the good moments really is capable of really delivering a whole the whole picture mm-hmm. somehow. Um, you still so find I, those moments. Sorry, do you find those moments? Either as so. a performer I think so, yeah. or not. I think I think I think uh, I'm I'm I've there's this concept of flow you've probably heard about with some guy uh, Hungarian American researcher Mihaly Chikchen Mihaly mm-hmm. <laughs> who wrote this who sort of came up with it, almost oh, like a, single-handedly like a invented this of... whole field of of flow. Well, he he was investigating just why do people, you know, he was particularly interested in in high performers, tennis players, musicians, whatever it is that just do these amazing things. How do they do that? Especially because we know that there is a, there is a uh, we have like a lag between reality and decision Mm -hmm. that is constantly being corrected by our brain so it's not like we live 0.7 seconds behind reality we do live in reality in real time but the thing is that we have uh, particularly when we're centering ourselves there's a there's a small lag in our brain that then sort of compensates for it and this is sort of research that came up in the 60s and that was completely um I mean, it was so seriously questioned for such a long time until people were just like, well, every time we do this experiment, it's very complicated experiment, but every time you do that, you get the same results. Right. And the only bloody way that this you could get these results is because if this is true. Well, this so is like when, when sports people talk about intangibles, right? It's yeah, the same thing. Yeah. It's like you could be the best quarterback in the world with arm strength or accuracy, but there's something to do with a combination of all these things, decision-making, leadership, mm-hmm. you know, all these things they say. That's really... Well, one of these things, for instance, is well, how do, uh, let's say, sports people, how do they perform that particular kick, that particular second in that particular, from that particular awkward position and just, like, Nail hit it. the yeah. perfect <laughs> ball? Not because they're thinking. It would yeah. be impossible for them to be thinking while they're doing that because they there is no time for you to analyze the situation. You need to just react, boom. And that is flow. That it, When you're capable of, of producing that, let's say reproducing that situation in yourself you're capable of doing these things it doesn't mean that you and i could be you know uh, fantastic tennis players simply if we just flowed we just make all these decisions but you and i are practice like an like a like an addict but you and i are fantastic improv musicians right (laughs) and now that you you've read this guy's theories does the knowing about does the awareness of the existence of this flow does it somehow influence the way? Does it now? Does that seep in when you're playing? Yeah, it does because it, because to me, to, I mean, I've, I've apart from knowing about this research and and I've never actually read a book of his, but I've I've looked into that field a little bit over the years. I talked to some other people, and there's actually like uh, <clears throat> master classes in flow. There's in in the classical musical world, this is quite accepted on in certain places uh, by certain people. 
so there's some sort of research about this stuff because and, and the whole idea being in music education being simply to in you know improve people's performance that's mm. the end uh, of, of, of sort of what they want to achieve with this thing and um i think we've all been in these as performers whether it's tennis or music we've all been in situations where we've just done something like a concert or a song or a, or some sort of situation and afterwards just like i uh, I really don't remember much of it. I just remember being there and somehow these 45 minutes just... Mm. And that was it. There was no... I wasn't conscious of making decisions. I, I just was there and I played that fantastic game or or set. And uh, that is, apparently, that is what flow is. Now, the problem with flow is that you can't go like, oh, I'm going to... Uh, Two seconds. Let me put my turn on my flow. <laughs> yeah, uh, it doesn't work that way. It's this. It's this intangible sort of. It's uh, like Schrodinger's cat, right? I mean, you kind of yeah, can't. Yeah, it's you're... this sort of thing that you can slip in, and then there's there's people who develop techniques to be able to slip into it. Yeah, uh, and I would argue that being aware of the fact that there is that s- sort of state to be in, of course can somehow help you maybe slip into it and then you can develop your own techniques for it and and one of the ways to do that is actually to stop thinking about what you're doing so so uh uh douglas adams is right you can fly if you just forget that you're falling while you <laughs> when you trip <laughs> you've read douglas yeah, adams of course. Yeah, that you was get what that i did in high school that was my science fiction i think um that's kind of the the challenge for me because you know everybody says you have to listen when you are improvising to other people and mm. you know you always uh, belie the people who don't listen to others and just play their solos over top but yet at the same time listening is thinking and there's i guess it's just the act of making listening so instinctual and mm. so guttural mm. that's something mm. that we have to work towards yeah and i don't know that actually takes practice that's a muscle yeah. listening right. is, it a, is muscle. a muscle listening yeah. is a muscle and the attitude while you're improvising that is a muscle in itself that what and some and attitudes can change. I think at least I find it for myself that you know sometimes you you sometimes there's a little spurt of like okay I'm going to take charge now. Yeah, that's I, you just feel like I want to take charge now, and that's quite legitimate. Uh, it's it's annoying when people feel like that the whole set. <laughs> but when you know there's always a moment I think for everyone to to just be the the person who says oh, okay damn it I'm. I'm taking charge, and that's okay. But that's one muscle to flex. Whereas there's the other muscle, which is you know I'll I'll just support. I'll do whatever I do. Yeah. I just I'm just in the back. I'm just pushing at the structure, the or the sort of uh, ambiance of the whole thing somehow. Sometimes I, I think that I, I the last few years when I've just gone to workshops and things, I, I've really sat back. I, I've not even tried to be the person to take charge. Sometimes mm. I just stop playing entirely and put my instrument down, fold my hands in my lap, and I wait. Also, maybe because I don't have the attention span anymore, and I'm mm. getting bored after ten minutes of <laughs> people just droning. I don't know. It, it's it can be, it can be really challenging. Are you? Um, how's the hurdy gurdy going? Oh, the hurdy gurdy. Uh, yeah, slowly but surely. I mean, it's a completely new instrument, but of course, I do bring uh, years of you know practicing other stuff. And, yeah, and, and you know, it's not like I'm a complete beginner, but of course, I am a many ways a beginner. And there's there's about the hurdy gurdy the same as with most instruments. Like you can teach someone to play a E major on a guitar quite quickly, mm-hmm. but getting them to do a, a F sharp minor seventh not so easy. 
somehow because you know you need a lot more muscles oh, and, and a slightly different finger yeah, but yeah whereas an e major on a guitar is just three fingers in the simplest position you can go pff, stick them there you're done um and then you can play all the six strings and i mean there's like an e major is is very easy yeah e minor is even easier e minor true yeah. true yeah. Uh, it doesn't sound as good though but you know <laughs> <laughs> if the guitar is well tuned, but uh, so there's there's on the hurdy gurdy, same as in any instrument. There's certain things you can do very intuitively, very quickly, and just do them, and they work because the instrument's built for that. And then there's all that other stuff that. <laughs> so it's a question of trying to uh, you know get past the easy stuff into the more intricate, sort of interesting stuff. But I'm hacking away at that yeah, thing, trying to figure things out, you know. And then also the hurdy gurdy is a very uh it's i think it's it's sort of uh, considered by other musicians i've heard who have played with real hurdy-gurdy players they they consider it a bit of a pain in the ass because there's a lot of fiddling with it just getting it ready for a yeah there's yeah. a lot of bloody fiddling with it because there are all the strings and this and you, you tune one then the others the other, the how the many other. strings are there this one is nine okay plus sympathetic so strings but i haven't even bothered with them so yeah they're, they're just are they hard they to are. reach to tune Okay. No, but they everything affects everything else, and yeah. it's it's like it's a very very mechanical sort of thing. Plus, it's the summer, so it's like the yeah, humidity yeah, comes yeah. in and it screws. And this up. instrument is brand new, so it's 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 literally off the yeah workbench, and so there's there's probably going to be another six to twelve months of you know just the wood, the glue, the all that stuff just settling in under the tension of all this stuff. So when I went to India twelve years ago now, uh, my friend said to me kind of as a joke like oh bring me back a harmonium so i did because you know they're not expensive and no. and then i somehow i had all this junk i bought the ezraj a harmonium a bunch of just weird little toy instruments and i got to the airport and they had these machines where you just drop all your stuff and it just mm. cling wraps mm -hmm. the whole thing yeah, yeah so i had this like weird misshapen thing that was like cling wrapped uh instrument package <laughs> but that harmonium which which played and sounded great in india when i took it back to the uk it was completely unplayable okay because the wood had oh yeah the keys yeah, were yeah, all yeah. stuck together yeah, then, yeah, and, yeah, yeah yeah and it just became i gave it to my friend i don't know if he still has it but i don't I mean, he would have probably had to like almost take take it apart and like sand the keys yeah, yeah 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 because yeah. the climate is so different yeah so, it just yeah. it just everything went crazy like, yeah, yeah it just wasn't it wouldn't even been like tuned correctly no know? no right it was a mess but are you bringing the hurdy-gurdy back to your next visit to helsinki no you know what i'm not because i've oh. i've i i it's it's actually down to airline regulations oh i see there's no way i'm sending that instrument yeah i have to carry it on and the problem is that SAS, uh, which tends to be what I fly simply because they they, they, mm. they tend to have sponsors good... of this podcast, by the way. Thank you, SAS. SAS. No, no. <laughs> nobody sponsors yeah, anyway. this podcast. But the point is that they fly very small planes yeah. to Helsinki, and their overhead luggage compartment is really small. So at that point, my instrument doesn't fit in there, yeah. and at that point, I run into trouble. Whereas a regular plane, it's not a problem. So, so you, I'm not totally you sure. Here, though. You said it was a hassle, but you got it here. I did get it here, but I I literally had to. I just had to say, well, I'm not getting on the plane unless you, you know, it's either me and my instrument or fuck off, yeah. uh, which would have been a disaster. I would have had to, you know, go back home to Uppsala, look up some bloody ferry and come over here on the drunk I'm boat. On the, I'm on the drunk boat. <laughs> yeah. You can bring your bike then. Of course, yeah, that's bike true. and a hurdy-gurdy is probably tricky. I know. The, the, no, it's not a problem but that way, but it's just it takes so much time. Yeah. So I, I appreciate oh, I love the ferries to Stockholm and Helsinki because it's, it's great. You do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because you just like put a few films in your laptop, you get a cab and you just sit there. 
watch films, you wake up, you're in Stockholm. It's, yeah, yeah. It's really easy. Way I think it's just that I've done that because for the first five, six years that Mary and I were were, were dating, or oh, she well, was, she was we were a couple, yeah, she was still here and we were just, we had no money and we the cheapest way. Also, flights have become cheaper. Yeah, they are. Than they were. Too cheap. 10, 15 years ago. But uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's because they there's no tax on airline uh, uh, fuel. Yeah. But um, so we were cashing these ferries all the time. I just, I just like allergic to that stuff. Even when we went to Tallinn the other day, just the two-hour trip to, to uh, Tallinn. Name, well, it was okay, but on the, the two-hour trip back already, then I was like, oh, geez. it's just like the smell of the carpets, the, the cleaner yeah. that they use. It's also the, the, the oh. summer ferries. I'm going on one tomorrow morning, and it's going to be yeah. crowded. Yeah, yeah. Friday yeah, especially, yeah, it's yeah. going to be full of people going to Tallinn yeah. to get wasted. And, um, well, it's a shame you're not bringing it back, because I guess instead of our, our hurdy-gurdy Ezraj duo uh, was going to happen, we did this podcast instead. But which... I will be bringing it back at some yeah. point, so okay. definitely, definitely. Yeah, we, I was I was actually thinking about that, because uh, it's it's a pity, yeah, because you're leaving tomorrow, so and yeah. I leave on Sunday, so we won't be able to do that. I, was... well, I think this podcast has been a pleasure as well, and I, hmm. I thank you very much for... Thank you. It's, it's been fun. Yeah, anything yeah. you want to plug? Like, uh, I mean, you have... This uh, performance coming up in Iceland, right? Yeah, you want to announce it to all of our well, listeners I mean, in Iceland. I, I guess I, there's nothing I don't know about plugging that. If if you're in Iceland, if you happen sure. to be in hey, tiny... the internet, people can be anywhere. <laughs> That's true, uh, but uh, yeah, in Akureyri in early September, there's a there's a sound art festival, and I'll be there. Uh, and then in end of October, there's another sound festival in Akureyri in Iceland, and I'll be there as well. Uh, but otherwise, I guess, you know, if I'm going to plug anything, just you could visit my website, girilal.com, G-I-R-I-L-A-L.com. So that's really simple. Oh, you got girilal.com. Yeah, the yeah, only yeah, one of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody was fighting for that. I've, I've had it for 15 years ago, uh, for, for 15 years. And, and five years ago, I, I was like, I should get a Twitter account. Damn, it was taken. Yeah, because the between oh. between fifteen years ago when I got GearLaw dot com and five years ago when I looked at Twitter, of course, India got online. Yeah, because GearLaw is an Indian name. It's not so. a super common name, but it's no, it's not I'm common. Sure it's but yeah, I remember people. fifteen years ago when I for, uh, the only time I've Googled my name, only once or twice that I've Googled my name. You should do it. It's great. There was three GearLaws. Three on the internet. Yeah. Right? Wow. There was myself, there was an Indian cricket player, surprise, uh-huh. <laughs> and there was some references and articles or books, um, links to reviews of books by a journalist called Girlal Jen, mm-hmm. who I happen to know I'm named after because oh, my father was like, yeah. he was a bit of a mentor for my father at some point. <laughs> so there was like three three Girlals on internet and Two of them were related to me. But uh, then when I would look for my Twitter account, uh, like 10 years later, loads of them. There's so many of them. Well, last year when they, they came out with these new top-level domains, mm. like .art, you know, yeah, all yeah, stuff, yeah. I, I realized there was a .fail because, you know, fail is this internet yeah, meme. Yeah. So I immediately tried to register John.fail, but somebody had already taken oh, it. Oh, bloody hell. And I contacted him because it was a guy named John something else. Yeah. And I said, hey, this is like actually my name. Would you maybe want to sell it to me or we could make some deal what are you using it for he, he told me that his nickname his friends call him fail and he just thought like he had nothing on he's like i don't know i thought i'd put like a personal website up there and i was okay. like but i need a personal website and my name is actually <laughs> john fail so then I, I thought well i use my middle initial always i always go by john w fail yeah. so i'll just get w dot fail just a one letter domain yeah. name, and then i could have john dot w dot fail 
And then I found out that one letter, single letter oh. domain names are premium and they cost something like 600 euros a year. They're, they're just cost more because they're yeah. seen as like more valuable. So that's why I decided to get johnw.fail, which, you know, it works. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know how yeah. many people ever look at it, but um, <laughs> this podcast can be found at johnw.fail <laughs> as well as www.seriousintrospection.fi. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything more to say because we're hitting an hour now. So as we were discussing before we recorded, podcasts can be too long. They right? can yeah. easily be too long, yes. And uh, I thank you for an electrifying and illuminating conversation. Thank you. And you'll be back in Helsinki soon. And I hope you come back all the time. I hope you move here. It's my uh, my dream to see more good people here. There's, <laughs> there's lots already. I wouldn't mind doing that. It's, yeah. uh, I get, there's, there's, it's more a question of, of well, you know, money and yeah shit like that <laughs> that we'll, we really we'll get, don't want to address we'll get the in this city, podcast. city government to roll out the red carpet to welcome you <laughs> so uh yeah so yeah thank you very much thank you thanks for listening